Hey friends, so we have talked a lot about sourdough on this podcast, and I've done lots of videos on sourdough, there's blog posts, but there are a few pieces of the sourdough process that I've just kind of gotten by with over the years. You know, I kind of understand what's happening, or maybe I don't understand at all, and sometimes it causes me problems, and other times I just make do. But since we're doing a deep dive on food this season, I wanted to get my questions answered once and for all and get really deep into the nitty gritty of how sourdough works. So I am so excited to have Kara Newman with me today. She literally wrote the book on sourdough science and she has a lot of wisdom to share. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're, you're not necessarily a homesteader, right? You're, you're more of a, you have a, kind of an ac- academic background with this interest in the science behind bread. So kind of tell us how you got interested in this topic. Well, I would, I would embellish that to say I'm kind of a mini homesteader okay. in an urban setting. I have a little urban farm with my chickens and I grow as many vegetables as I can and fruit trees. Um, but I do live in a city where I can walk to a restaurant and cafe. So it's a little, <laughs> not it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, but it still um, counts. <laughs> but my background is, um, I'm a scientist. I'm, I have a PhD in molecular and cellular biology. And the type of research that I've studied and that I do is, um, involves a lot of culturing of microbes, yeast and bacteria. And that's exactly what you find in a sourdough starter. Yeast and bacteria live in the starter. Many different species are in a community together in that little jar. And um, miraculously, those species raise our bread for us. And uh, it's a very complex process. And um, But I try to break it down for people and make it a little bit easier to understand. So <laughs> I think it's, that's where I came at bread making from. I think it's so awesome to have... I mean, what a perfect segue as far as like a career into the world of sourdough. That's just awesome. <laughs> Did you, do you think you were more drawn to sourdough because of your work with microbes or how did that kind of come, come into play? You know, I grew up in a home where all the food was homemade. Um, and I carried that with me into, I have my own family and I like to make homemade food. I married someone who likes to make homemade food. And we really enjoy that. So I think there was that part of me has always been a part of who I am. And understanding science and how those microbes work is just something that has really been special for me to really understand how intricate and beautiful the harmonious processes of all these different organisms are together. And just those two things coming together in a hobby was like just great for me. I really, it really took off for me because both of these things that I love were like unified in this one endeavor. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, So I have a bunch of questions here for you. And if it's okay with you, we'll just dive in and kind of see where the conversation takes us. Um, I think my, my first question is, kind of has to do with the yeast and bacteria that live in a starter. And I feel like maybe I've even perpetuated some bad information over the years where I've said it comes from the air, you know, we're start, you're starting it with flour and water and like, I'm like, oh, it comes from the air or it comes from here or there. Is that actually true? Or am I like lying <laughs> on all my sourdough tutorials? Well, it's not untrue. There are yeast and bacteria in the air floating around their spores or whatever. They can get into your starter jar and um, 
Some people say there's a special species of bacteria that lives in the San Francisco Bay Area that makes them famous for their sourdough, for example. Um, but what's really evident is that when wheat is growing in the field or whichever grain you're using, rye, there are wild species of yeast and bacteria that are all over that stuff. They're just covering it. And they're not dangerous for us to eat, so I don't want to scare anybody, but they're just wild natural organisms that are found out there in nature in the field. And when the grain is harvested and it's brought to the mill and it's ground up, those bacteria and yeast are in the flour that we eat. And um, so when you just add some water to flour, all of a sudden you're hydrating these direct organisms, which are kind of in their dried up vegetative state, let's just say. And when the water hits them, they're like, woohoo, and they start dividing and growing. Normally, when you go to make cookies or something, there's really not enough time or conditions for them to grow and propagate. But when we cultivate them in a starter jar and we try to get a new starter going, we give them on purpose the conditions where they can divide and propagate enough to make a, a viable starter. Okay. So basically, we're going to have more of the action coming from the flour we're using and less just from like floating in the air. Yeah, I would say so. I'm sure that if you tried to make a starter in the bakery of a, you know, like a professional bakery that uses a particular sourdough strain, there's probably tons in the air there. And so some of that's going to wind up in your starter. Um, but I think for the regular kitchen, it's probably mostly coming from the flour. Okay. So that's why a lot of people suggest if you want to make your own starter to start with a whole grain product because the bran is in the whole grain. And in white flour, the bran is removed. The bran is like the case around each wheat berry. And so being the outside part of that little berry, it has the most um, microorganisms available on it. So that's probably going to help you have enough to make a good starter. So you'd recommend the whole wheat to begin versus the all-purpose. Exactly. Just kind of on a general rule. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the all-purpose flour has the part the part of the the grain that has the most um, species on it has been removed and thrown away or used yeah. for something else. So it's more sterile, if you want to say it that yes, way. It doesn't that, have as many microorganisms in it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I have noticed um, when I even just feeding starters that's established when I use a whole grain flour. I just get way more action generally than I do with all purpose. Not that I still can't get it to work with all purpose, but it just is happier. It seems with the whole flower. Yeah. So that's actually for a different reason. Um, you're probably not getting action from those bacteria and, and yeast present on the, on the brand of that whole grain flour. It's that whole grain flour has a lot more of the kinds of sugars in it that um, your yeast and really like. So oh, okay. that kind of jumpstarts the action because the food is like a, a better quality for them. Okay. That's good to know. I see. I'm learning all kinds of things already. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a question on, you mentioned like the San Francisco starters and like sometimes you can buy a freeze dried starter. It'll say it's Alaskan or San Francisco. So, you know, they're, they're saying it has that certain tang or maybe are they, I'm, I'm assuming they're claiming there's a certain strain of bacteria in that starter to, that makes it, San Francisco or Alaskan or yeah. whatever, is that going to actually continue um, to exist once I start bringing it home and I'm using my own flour? Like, is it, is it all kind of going to end up being homogenous at some point or will it maintain hmm, that? Okay. I'll try to answer that question with a little explanation. So 
let's say you're making a brand new starter. You've got your jar from of new flour, let's say whole grain flour. And over the course of 10 days, finally, you get something that rises and um, looks, looks like a good starter. What's, what's in that jar is dozens, literally dozens of species of different bacteria and yeast. Um, and uh, over, let's say you feed it every day for several years. Over those several years, the, the population stabilizes. There's going to be maybe two or three dominant yeast strains and maybe a dozen dominant bacterial strains. The other ones that were there in the, initially are going to disappear. So now you've got a very tight-knit community. They all love each other a lot <laughs> and they want to be together in balance. And so that starter becomes very stable and it would be very hard for a really established starter to get infected with something else. Those organisms that are primarily in there will probably in a few generations kick that guy out, <laughs> the new guy out. Okay. Um, if your starter is pretty new though, a year old, couple years old, couple months old, that's a different story. It probably is, especially like, let's say your kitchen is full of a very well-established starter and you make up a new one. It might, your new one might get taken over by the established starter. Okay. That makes sense. So you're going to have that strength. Just because of, it's so much. You're, yeah. You'll have that like, for example, the, everyone knows about the Oregon trail starter, Carl's 1847 trail starter. Like that thing has been it knows it has like evolved to be a very good user of, of, of what's available to eat in flour and water pastes. So <laughs> it knows how to like beat out the other, the other microorganisms and, and take all the, all the food for itself. So it will probably win. <laughs> okay. Which is, that's kind of fun. I was, I was hoping that was the case because I was thinking, well, I hope that, you know, if you do have the Oregon trail starter or, um, once someone gave me, I think it was a hundred year old starter that had been passed down and I, I killed it, um, which made me so sad, but I was like hoping, you know, you I wanted the romance of, I, I just didn't feed it for a very long period of time. It was, it was a while ago. Yeah. Um, so it, I was still new in my journey and I did not care for it properly, but I was wanting that romance of like knowing it was strong enough to last and not just become like any other starter I'd make. So that's good to know. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, you're forgiven. Don't worry. <laughs> I, yeah. We've all done it. I'm, I'm sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's the thing. I think it can be very, uh, I think when someone first hands you a starter and you don't know much about what, you, what it needs and what you need to do that you get so much information, like maybe you need to feed it every eight hours and you need to stir it and you need to sing to it or play it classical music <laughs> or people come up with these really laborious um, routines for their starter management, which <laughs> I think can be overwhelming. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, so that brings me to a question. Over the years and people have said like, how much should I feed my starter? You know, sometimes I'm like, well, I do mine once a day. Sometimes I'll do it twice a day. Sometimes I'm just like, I go by feel. Like what's the science behind the proper feeding frequency, if there is one. <laughs> um, well, I would say, okay, let's just start with, there's two ways to keep a starter. One is you have a giant crock with like a quart of starter in it. And when you bake, you take a cup out and you put a cup of new flour and water paste. But most of what's in there is like old. Okay, that's a different way of making starter. And it's 
wonderful and fine, but I'm not going to talk about that at all. I'm going to talk about the way where you have a little jar of starter and when you want to refresh it, you take a little bit out and you either put it in a new jar or you throw everything else out and just keep a little in the original jar. And then you add lots more water and flour paste. So basically your old starter has yeast cells, bacterial cells, and their wastes. And they have a paste of what used to be flour and water, but is now mostly eaten up food and whatever's in there, acids, compounds, flavor compounds they've made. So you take a little bit of this population of yeast and bacteria and their wastes, and you add fresh, like fresh water and flour. And what you're doing is basically giving them a clean environment to grow in away from a high concentration of wastes, which they don't really like. And you're giving them new food to eat. So the ideal time to feed them is when they start running out of food before they get to that point where they are swimming in their own wastes. Like, so let's say your starter is growing. It's at its peak um, height in its gained height in your jar. There's like the peak number of bacteria and um, yeast in there. And most importantly, yeast. The bacteria are just going to be fine. You don't have to worry about them. But the yeast is your buddy. That's one who raises your bread. Um, So when it starts to deflate, what's happened is the yeast have run out of food. And now they're starting to get kind of cranky and hungry. And as they go down and sink, they're, they're fine. But once they sit in that sunk position for a long time, they go into starvation mode. And they start dying in the wastes of their own, they're in the bacteria's making. And so that's too late. So once it sinks, you want to feed it as soon as possible. Okay. The key thing is the timing is going to depend on two things, temperature and um, how much of your original um, starter you put in there with the new flour and water. So if you put one part starter, one part flour, one part water, it's going to take a certain amount of time at a certain temperature. Let's say you put it on your countertop and you notice, oh, it's ready to be fed again in 24 hours. And that's, that's a good routine for me. Fine. But if you notice, oh, it's ready to be fed again in eight hours because it's summer and it's hot now, what you might want to do instead is either keep your starter in a cooler spot or feed only make the starter like a tiny part starter, a lot of flour and water. Okay. And then it's going to take longer for that little bit of starter to finish using up all the food in that like bigger amount of food you gave it. You don't have to have a bigger starter jar. You just use a little bit less starter to begin with. Okay. (laughs) Does that make any sense? No, it does. (laughs) So it's not necessarily like you have to keep on a certain schedule. It's just paying attention to what your starter is telling you. Yeah. And Like, for example, my routine is I like to keep my starter in the refrigerator, and that's a constant, I mean, unless the refrigerator breaks, that's a constant temperature. So I know how long it takes my starter to run out of food in the refrigerator. And so for me, that takes a week. So as long as I feed my starter once a week, everything's good, and it's in good condition, and I can bake whenever I want. Um, I usually end up feeding it whenever I bake as well, so it it gets fed regularly, but if I'm busy and I'm not baking, I know it'll be okay for a week if I keep, if I feed it once a week. Okay. So I've seen different recipes. Like I've, there's some books I have that um, will take an active starter and then put it in with the bulk of the flour. And then you proceed with your rise and your recipe. And then I have other ones that have kind of an intermediate step 
where I think they call it like a soaker or a sponge. And I think there's a couple other names I'm not recalling at the moment where you take like, kind of like what you're saying, I think just trying to correlate here. You take that little bit of starter, add it, you almost like feed it uh, in your bowl and then you add the rest of your ingredients and the rest of the flour later. Is that kind of that, the, the method that yeah. you're following? So in, in my book, I call that a levain, which yes. is basically a giant starter that you're going to bake all of it in your bread. None of it's going to be kept. You have to keep your your mother starter over yeah. here separate. And then you've got your levain that you make just for the purposes of putting it in your bowl of dough and baking. Um, yeah. So um, in my book, and there's two different kinds of recipes. One, you make a levain first, and then you use it in your bowl of dough and bake it. And those recipes, you end up with bread faster. Okay. And then I have other recipes that require a lot less hands-on work where you just mix everything up in the beginning and you kind of let it go overnight and you deal with it the next day and bake it. Yes. Okay. And um, <laughs> yeah. so there's, there's kind of two ways to go on that. And it seems like the Levain method, you're, you're having, you're feeding less, which is nice for those who are worried about, you know, oh my gosh, I constantly have discard. I constantly am using so much flour. It seems like you're feeding once a week and just using it and making the levain only when you need it makes a little more makes a little more thrifty. It's way more thrifty. I mean, for me, I keep a one fourth cup starter. That's the most I ever keep. That's enough to begin. That's enough to make two loaves of bread in one recipe. That would use like all the starter, but you can take your starter jar, take all the starter out, and then that little bit of like like that's left stuck to the jar. That's plenty to start your. To add flour and water and it'll grow back in a day. Okay. Yeah. No, I <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. In that case, there's very little starter discard. There's nothing really to throw away. I mean, I do, sometimes I just collect the starter discard if I'm not baking and um, I end up making waffles and all kinds of other wonderful things. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I don't like to throw away food and I don't want to have an overwhelming amount of sourdough starter that I have to find uses for. Um, so this is, this is the method that works for me. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you talk a little bit about just the balance of yeast and bacteria and what that looks like in the starter? Um, okay. Yeah. So like I said, the most important person in your starter is the yeast. The yeast is the organism that is responsible for raising your bread. The bacteria are important because they support the yeast and they provide an environment that the yeast needs to grow. Um, and they also add a lot of flavor to the sourdough bread. Um, so in an ideally kept starter, you would have, um, <clears throat> you would have a high amount of yeast, the optimal amount of yeast and the bacteria, you don't ever have to worry about them. They'll come along. They are pretty, um, they're pretty good at living no matter what. <laughs> Um, so one way to keep the yeast higher than the bacteria is always to, as I said, feed it when is, when it starts to de decline and also to keep your starter below 80 degrees above 80 degrees, bacteria will grow much faster than yeast and take over your starter. And what does that look like? What would the signs be of that, that someone would maybe be looking for? Um, like if you had too much bacteria in yeah. your starter, um, okay. Some top signs of that would be that your, well, your starter's deflated. 
your starter becomes runny when there's a lot of bacteria. The gluten in the flour breaks down, and the bacteria and the the starter consistency becomes really runny, even though it wasn't runny when you first mixed it. Okay. Um, and another key observation is you open the jar and a blast of acidic air like scorches your nostrils. That's way too many bacteria, <laughs> not okay. enough yeast. So the, the key to that, to fix that is to refresh a little bit of that old starter with a lot of new food and to keep it below 80 degrees um, until the yeast can repopulate. Okay. That makes sense. I, yeah. I, I've had those things happen. I didn't realize that's why. So that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's so complicated, but once you have a sense of it, it really, it makes sense. Um, do you have a certain variety of flour, uh, that you prefer? Like, I know we talked about whole wheat a minute ago. I know some people love rye starters or they're doing einkorn. I know there's benefits to each. Do you have one that you prefer over the others? Um, for keeping my starter, I just use an all purpose flour, an unbleached all purpose flour. Um, I find that makes everything pretty easy and um, my starter can live a long time in the fridge on just that kind of purified flour. Um, but when I bake, I, I like to bake with a lot of whole wheat flour. Um, I also really like semolina, which is um, kind of a hard durum wheat flour that is yellow and it has a nice, um, a nice buttery flavor that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I kind of, I like rye too. <laughs> they're, they're all my friends. They're all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to pick one over the others. Yeah. My kids really like when I make bread with white flour. So I try to, I aim to please them. Yeah. Um, but I prefer whole wheat. So we kind of, sometimes I make like a 50, 50, or I like to sneak in, um, white whole wheat. That is, um, White whole wheat is a kind of grain in which the bran around the around, around the wheat berry is missing the red pigment that makes most um, wheat brown. And so instead of it's kind of like a blonde color. And it also is missing, um, the, the pigment is tannins and tannins give a little bit of bitterness. So sometimes you might feel like whole wheat bread tastes a little more bitter. Um, so white whole wheat is kind of a nice way to sneak a little whole wheat into your family's diet without them knowing because it's it's hard to see, especially if you mix it with white flour. Okay. Yeah. So I like that one. I, I've used, I've noticed that, that we like the, the white, the hard white as well versus the red. Just like you said, it's a little more palatable. So that brings me to another question that has plagued me for years, and that is the struggle of a hundred percent whole wheat loaves. Um, they just don't behave the same. They don't rise the same. They're dense. They don't taste as good. And I just can't get that nice spring. Why does that happen? Um, well, the reason why it happens is because the bran in whole wheat flour is very sharp. And what makes bread rise is the gluten network, which is basically a network of strands of proteins um, that give structure to the bread and holds the air bubbles in that are being, when the gas is being produced by the yeast, these are like sort of little balloons form in this gluten structure. And if the gluten structure is compromised by sharp little bran particles, they're popping all the little balloons, the gas is just leaving the bread and your bread is 
not rising very well. And that's why a lot of people have trouble with um, whole wheat. And one, one method that I like for dealing with a 100% whole wheat bread is to just not do anything to it. You mix your dough and you put in a small amount of starter so that it will take a long time for the um, bread to be ready to bake. And you um, keep it at a cool temperature to make sure there's a nice, long, slow rising process. And you just don't touch it. You don't work the dough. You don't give that brand the opportunity to um, pop all the bubbles that are happening in the dough because they're all kind of sitting still. And during that long process, the bran becomes hydrated and softer and a little bit less sharp. And so by the time you go to fold your dough together to make your loaf, you just handle it very gently, put that in the oven, and you can get a very nice, light whole wheat dough. And actually, it's very little work for you, <laughs> which is okay. another benefit. So yeah, I have a recipe called whole wheat uncut that is 100% whole wheat. Um, and I, the first time I made it, I was shocked at how light the bread was. I was like, this can't work, but it did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now it's a favorite because I put a little molasses in there and everybody likes that or a little honey. Yeah. And so that's more like, it's kind of like maybe more similar to a no need method. If you're going to, if you're trying to get that spring from the whole wheat, then. Yeah. I think a lot of flours that have either delicate gluten structures for example, spelt, einkorn, emmer, those, those um, grains have gluten in them, but their gluten is different and it's not as strong as what we have in our traditional wheat that we normally use. Um, and so a lot of handling of those flours can cause the gluten to sort of break down before it gets into the oven. And then you have the same problem. All the little bubbles are popped, so there's nothing, there's no rays to it. Yes. Um, so I like to use the no need method with, um, with a lot of whole grain recipes. Okay. Um, I mean, there is kind of another way around it, which is you just need it so much that you add a little bit of white flour in there too. And you need it so much that something builds up at some point, but that's, I don't choose that route, <laughs> but other people do that. And so there, there are, there is more than one way to get a light loaf of whole wheat, but I, I like to do things with the least amount of <laughs> hard work on my part. And, um, so I go for the no need. I feel encouraged by that. Cause I, I was playing with a technique, um, a couple months ago in a book I got, and it was, it started with Levain and then it, it was kind of a multi-step hundred percent whole wheat loaf. And it was, it was good. It still didn't spring as much, but it was, it was at least hopeful. Cause there was, I mean, for years I would I didn't understand. And I would try to just swap, you know, for a recipe that called for all hundred percent, all purpose, I'd use hundred percent freshly ground and the family's like, Oh yeah. You're gonna run into so bad. <laughs> so bad. Several problems there because um, the other thing is that bran soaks up a lot of water. So in a recipe, the hydration level is very important and it needs to be calculated depending on what flour you use. So if you do want to substitute in some whole wheat in a recipe, let's say you just want to throw in 25%, you should if you've made the recipe before and you know what the dough is like, you're going to probably, when you've mixed that dough, look at it and say, it seems drier than last time. I'm going to need to add a little bit of water. Like it's just a tablespoon at a time until the consistency looks familiar. Yeah. <laughs> because the, the bran takes the water out of the dough and now your bread is more dry. Like the, the dough you're working with is more dry. So it's going to behave differently. Um, what, what about considerations when you are using freshly ground? 
Um, I know freshly there's a different ground. there is what else do we need to keep in mind? Freshly ground flour has a number of things that can be going on. Um, one is that when you first grind the flour, it's warm. So if you're ready to mix your dough right away, um, you should calculate that the flour is warmer. So your dough is going to be warmer from the get go. Um, and you should look at your grinder and see how warm is it getting. If it's getting really hot, then there can be damage to some of the gluten and some of the enzymes in the flour, and it may not function as well. So then if that's the case with your particular grinder, you might want to use it as an accent dough in a loaf, not use 100% fresh ground flour. Um, another thing that happens is the, um, the gluten, <laughs> this is kind of hard to explain, the gluten that's in flour becomes better after flour ages. It, it, it has more structure after the flour ages. So brand new fresh flour, the gluten is like a little bit like a teenager. It's not quite, it's not quite as strong yet. Okay. And um, for that reason, sometimes adding a little bit of vital wheat gluten to your um, to your mix. And this can also help your whole wheat bread, your 100% whole wheat bread. Both, both of those situations, if you add a tablespoon of vital wheat gluten to your recipe when you're building your dough, it can really help like give some loft to your bread. Um, and that's just a product that's extracted out of flour. So there's, it's not any kind of weird chemical. It's just one part of the flour is taken out. Um, so I will do that sometimes with my fresh flour. Uh, another thing that can happen with freshly ground flour is that your particular batch of wheat berries might not be very high in this um, particular enzyme that's needed to release the, um, the sugar molecules that the, the yeast want to eat. Um, and like a big flour manufacturer will test every batch of their flour and then they'll add in um, this extra enzyme, which they, you can get from sprouted wheat. It comes from sprouted wheat or sprouted barley. Um, it's called amylase. Okay. Anyway, you, you can make your own or purchase your own, um, barley malt flour or wheat malt flour, and you can add it into your bread if, if you're having problems. And in the book, I kind of have a little part on like all the different things that can go wrong when you use your freshly milled flour and like what different things you can try to help, um, solve your problem because it's hard to know, um, but for anyone buying a grain mill, like I totally recommend it. It's super fun. And I mean, you're completely independent. You can buy a 50 pound bag of wheat berries and like subsist for years on that. It's, they're very stable wheat berries. They don't need, as long as you don't have mice um, or humidity, they're very stable and they'll keep for years and you can grind your flour and have your bread whenever you want. So it's great. I agree. Uh, on the the mills are fun and I never knew that it took a while for the gluten to age which makes complete sense when I think about like sometimes I'd use that freshly ground flour which I'm like this should be the best of the best it's fresh and it's warm and then it just doesn't act the same but now that makes complete sense so yeah fascinating <laughs> yeah it's it's surprising I mean it really helps you to understand why we as a society gravitate towards white flour because yeah when you remove the germ, which can spoil over time, um, the flour is more shelf stable. And when you remove the bran, the it's easier to get your bread to behave nicely and raise well. And um, and then you can age the flour and get better gluten um, formation in your dough. 
without the germ and the bran being in there, because those are the parts that are more likely to spoil or go rancid. So white flour is very shelf stable. I mean, I don't recommend using really old white flour because it picks up coders, but it's, it, it's not bad to eat it. It's fresh and good, even if it's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> Whole wheat flour, on the other hand, can actually go rancid and needs to be used within you know, a little bit of time. If someone doesn't have a grain mill and they're shopping for whole wheat flour, how can they make sure that they're not getting something that's been on the shelf or it's going to be rancid before they get it home? That is a really important question to answer. Um, I highly recommend buying a package that has a date stamp on it. Or if you like to buy out of bins, which I like to do that too, um, you're going to a store where you know that that store, like, has a really high turnover of their binned products. You know, I wouldn't, if you go in a store and it seems like I hardly ever have any shoppers and the parking lot's always like has three cars in it instead of 30 cars. Um, you don't know how long that stuff's been in there. Um, you could buy a sample amount and kind of take it home and smell it. <laughs> yeah. Rancid flour has a particular bitter odor. It doesn't smell good. If you smell it, it should smell good. It should smell like fragrant and nice. Um, you know, use your instincts to guide you in that case. Um, but yeah, I would buy something with the date stamp if you're in doubt. Okay. Yep. Good advice for sure. Um, can we, how do we switch? I'm just, I'm just kind of jumping topics here, but back to the starters, how do we switch between flowers? So for example, if I am feeding my starter all purpose and then I maybe run out of all purpose and I have whole wheat for a while, or maybe I want to go from rye to all purpose. Is that detrimental or is there like a transition period that I need to keep in mind? Um, well, first I would ask like, are, is this a new starter that you just made like a month ago? Or is this a starter that has been around the block lots of times and it's very stable and you're because, and I guess the other thing is why, why would you want to do it? If it's just because today you want to make rye bread, then I would make a Levain a separate oh, okay. jar with the rye flour in it and then use that to make my rye, my, if I want to make all rye bread or maybe even feed it a couple times, like have like a rye starter over here. Meanwhile, I'm still feeding my regular whole wheat or whatever, regular all-purpose flour or starter in a, in a separate jar and I have two for a little while. Okay. Um, and like, especially if you just want to do a lot of experimenting, you can always make what I call like an offshoot starter. So you have your regular jar and then you have your experimental jar that you keep feeding in parallel. Um, and then you might down the road decide like, well, I really like baking with this rye starter better than my regular starter. So I'm just going to throw the regular starter away and just continue because you don't want to be feeding like dozens of different starters yeah, every day. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to just continue with the rye. But I really encourage people to, once they've found... Um, what a routine that they like to stick with it because that helps to build that stable community. Um, and when you have a nice stable community in your jar, then it acts predictably when you make bread, you don't have to worry that sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't um, because it'll have the same group of bacteria and yeast in there every time in the same proportions. Okay. So you can do some offshoots. You can feed your Levain if you're wanting to go with different flowers. So you have options. Yeah, like for example, um, uh, in the book, sometimes if I'm going to make a whole, like if I want to make that 100% whole wheat bread, we make a Levain that has a whole wheat, it's a whole wheat Levain. So the 
the starter gets used to eating whole wheat flour before I put it in my big bowl of dough. And I think that can be a good thing. Um, you know, there's always an adjustment f- um, phase for um, yeast. You put them in a new environment. Now they've got new food, new water. There's a lag time before they take off and start really growing where they sort of are adapting to their new environment. Um, and that's true even when you're going from a white flour to a white dough. But with a different kind of flour, there's going to be a little more of a lag time. So it can be advantageous to make a levain or to start an offshoot starter um, if you want to take it in that direction. Have you played with gluten-free sourdough starters at all? I'm sorry to say that I have not. Um, there is no one gluten-free in my immediate family. And we do. I do have gluten-free friends and relatives that visit. And I really feel like... Um, like I wouldn't want to mess up at all with them. So I feel more comfortable serving them a product that is like that they trust that they've chosen. Um, And I would get that for them. (laughs) I'm happy to like buy them what they need, but I just, I wouldn't want to, yeah, expose them to something in food I've made. So normally I just, yeah, don't do bread. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm right there with you. We, we're not gluten-free, um, right now. So I've had people ask me about it and I know there's a way to do it, but I haven't personally tried it. So I'm kind of with you. If yeah. if we're going to have someone think, over this gluten-free, I'm like, we'll just make something else. So we won't try to do the bread. Yeah. Like where I live, there's, there's gluten-free bakeries. And so I know it's doable. I just, um, it, it seems like something that if I had a gluten-free child, for example, I would probably really embrace learning about it, but yeah. there, just, there just hasn't been a a motivating force because we have some good gluten-free bakeries where I live and that's nice. <laughs> that's good enough for that's my nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes I eat it just for fun. Yeah. Yep. I went, yeah. When you can nail a gluten-free loaf, I'm, I'm just kind of like you, you are, that's amazing. Cause I know that's, that's challenging. So I have full respect for people who can do that. Yeah. I mean, that said there, there, I think there's one loaf of bread. I is rye gluten-free. I can't remember. No, I don't think rice. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think there's anything in my book that would it all qualify. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Um, it's just just because skull and crossbones for people that yeah. can't use gluten. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you balance back to loaves? I'm just sorry, I'm jumping. My brain's all over the place here. How do you balance like the hydration levels? Because I know you know our favorite loaves are the ones with lots of hydration and they got the big holes. And we love that yeah. texture, but of course that's trickier to handle and work with. And I know beginners all get emails. They're like, my dough is flat. Like, how, do you have any tricks or thoughts on that? Um, so with the higher hydration dough, uh, one thing that's important is to build up the gluten network. And you can do that in two different ways. One is by doing the stretch and folds mm-hmm. or the coil folds or the slap and folds. People use different methods. Um, or even just stirring it, folding it over with your spatula in the bowl can develop strength and then letting it rest for a few minutes and repeating several times. You'll see it go from like an amorphous mass to something that's boingy and springy over like three or four sets of those. Um, and in terms of like getting it stuck all over yourself, I recommend wet hands, wet wet spatula, wet hands, um, when you turn it out, turn it out onto a slightly damp countertop and you'll have a lot less sticking. Okay. 
I have noticed when I do the folding, it, it's always amazing to me when I'm like, oh, this is never going to work. And then the more I fold, I'm like, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun to see that process. Yeah. Especially when, you know, you come from a world where you think you have to need everything all the time. It's just neat to see, like you said, with the whole wheat bread, you don't really do anything with it. And then, or you just do some minimal work. So. Yeah. The thing about the gluten and gluten and gliadin are the, the two proteins that come together and make the network. They would like to be together in an organized network. That's how they um, are most comfortable. Let's just say I'm sort of personifying them, but chemically that's the way they want to bond together and when you first mix up dough they're kind of like all jumbled together in a big spaghetti mess but they're not they're not happy that way that's like over time they will just realign if there's enough water around and they can move a little bit they'll realign in a bowl of wet hydration dough so some overnight doughs you don't really have to do all the stretch and folds you just give them enough time and a lot of hydration and it actually happens spontaneously it's kind of like, um, but kneading kind of speeds up the process or doing a lot of stretch and folds speeds up the process and gets it underway early on in the process. Okay. So that can be advantageous, but I feel like it's kind of like, um, if you put some salt in a glass of water, it will eventually dissolve. But if you stir the water, it will dissolve faster. It's just like that. Okay. That makes sense. That's so cool. Yeah. Just all the chemistry that I had no idea that was happening in my kitchen. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. How do you adapt when you have a, a recipe that you want to try that calls for commercial yeast? What are your tricks for adapting that into a sourdough recipe? Um, well, I like to, um, I like to look at the proportions. First of all, I say how much flour total weight is in this recipe. And then how, and then I look at how much weight of liquid they've added to the recipe. And then I do a little math to take out um, an amount of, um, I'm going to add starter instead of yeast. So my starter is going to have some flour and some water in it. So I subtract that out and I try to keep the starter, um, the flour and water proportions similar. So let's say that the loaf calls, the recipe calls for a pound of flour. That's 450 grams essentially. Um, I'll use 450 grams of flour. And then let's say I've calculated that it's a 70% hydration. So then I'll use 70% of 450 as my number of grams of water. And then I'll subtract about 15 grams from each for my starter. I'll usually use 30 grams of starter. Okay. Um, if I want, that's if I want to make an overnight loaf where I don't need it. If I want to use a Levain, <laughs> that makes the math a little more complicated because then I'll subtract out 75 grams of the water and the flour, and I'll use that to build the Levain the day before. Okay, that makes so sense. So that in the end, I still have, when I have my final bowl of dough in the end and I'm mixing it, it has the same number of grams of flour and water in it as the original recipe. Okay. Or, and it gets more complicated if there's eggs and milk and, you know, but you can, you can usually figure it out. Okay. You just look at the weights. Yes. Weights just make everything easier for sure. Yeah. And it can be hard because like, let's say you're doing like your grandma's whatever, like clover, clover leaf rolls and she's got cups and you know, that can really, then you have to do a lot of like <laughs> difficult math. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, I do both in my kitchen weight and 
cups. We, we bought a restaurant last year. And so we've been lately working on food costs and everything is in grams, like to figure out how much of each item is in each recipe and then figuring out costs. And so we've been spending lots of time with measuring and the scales. And so, you know, it's, it's hard. I feel like it'd be the same with this recipe transitioning. It's hard, but once you do it, it's there and it's makes sense and it's so much easier. Yeah. I feel like when I do this with recipes, I always write out all the math and then I keep it there (laughs) because if it doesn't work out, then I'm like, what did I do? Did I make an error? Like, did I miscalculate? So, (laughs) Um, but I think it's great. I, I think it's good to remember, especially when you're looking at old fashioned recipes that up until a hundred years ago, everyone used sourdough in their recipes. Um, or sometimes people use the, the foam on the top of the beer vats in oh, Europe. That was a big deal. They okay. would take the yeast from the top of the beer mm-hmm. <laughs> and use that to raise their bread. Yeah. So we didn't used to have little packets. So the recipe, if it's that, if it's been in your family that long or it's come from someone else's family, it probably was made with sourdough originally. Then it was converted to a packet yeast version and now you can convert it right back. Yes. <laughs> yes. No problem. Good point. Um, I'm always reminding myself so many of the things that I'm, I feel like I'm pushing back on in our homesteading life. You know, it's, it's, I'm going back or I'm not being normal, but I'm like, no, actually this is normal. This, this modern version, like the commercial yeast is actually the newcomer to the scene. It's the, the not as normal thing. So I love kind of seeing it come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And I love um, also just being able to have a sort of a packet free yes. food that I've made. I know what everything is and where it came from. And especially if you're grinding your own wheat, you just, it's like really liberating to feel like you have that much control over your food source. I could not. Especially when you're feeding your kids, I think. (laughs) Yes. Same. Absolutely. Okay. Well, this time has flown by. I have one more question for you um, about baking. So I've noticed that sometimes it may just be my oven, but I've heard other people with the same issue. We have our loave, loaves. I'm, I bake mine in Dutch ovens with the lids on and off sometimes. I'm not sure your exact method, but often the bottoms of those loaves just get so dark. Like they're almost, you, you can't hardly chew them. Do you have any tricks yeah. for preventing that from happening? Yes. I'll give you two quick tricks. Um, well, three. First, if you probably can't, but if you can raise the rack in your oven and still fit your Dutch oven, mm-hmm. that's one thing you can try. Okay. Another thing you can try is to, um, let's say you've got your Dutch oven in there and you, it's sitting on a rack, put a rack below it and put a baking sheet there. That acts like a shield okay. deflecting the heat. It, the heat has to go around and up to the top instead of radiating right on the bottom of your, your, your um, Dutch oven. And then a third trick you can try is um, if you're putting your bread into the Dutch oven on baking paper, before you put it in, sprinkle some coarse cornmeal Mm. so that the baking paper is sitting on a little platform of cornmeal. And that makes a little air buffer to keep the heat from directly radiating into your bread. And that will give the bottom a little more of a cushion from the heat so that the top can cook and it'll, it'll be more of a similar timing. Okay. Those are super smart. So we're just trying to get that disperse, just spread it yeah, out. Yeah, you're trying bit. to either a shield or an air pocket be below the bread. Um, another thing people use is like one of those air bake um, pans that is has like a built-in air layer between it. Oh, 
Oh. Or you can just sandwich together two baking pans and they will make a little air layer, okay. which is kind of like the MacGyver way to do it. Yes, I'm all <laughs> for that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. So tell us about your book. I, it's on its way here. I was hoping it would be here before we chatted, but I'm super excited okay. to get it. So, it looks like this. <laughs> awesome. Um, it is 300 and something pages of recipes, and it has a huge um, section in the front with photo essays showing you exactly how to make bread in the most easy way possible. Um, and it has a huge troubleshooting section in the back. So when you're in the middle of your recipe and something isn't quite right, you don't have to go running to the internet, looking all over the place for help. Everything's right in this one book to help you. Awesome. And is it available like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, like typical book places? Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. It's available at all those places, Target, everywhere. Awesome. Yeah. I am really excited, guys. Yeah. I think, Hopefully yeah. at your local bookstore. Yes. Check the local bookstores first. So I always encourage that. Um, if they don't have it, ask them, ask them for it. Maybe they will get it in for you and other people in your community can enjoy it too. Yes. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it guys. Um, I'm all about lately. I'm just like, I want to buy all the books lately. I, I feel like the internet's great and I've used it for years, but like, I'm all about the really good reference and resource books, having them on my shelf. So they're there all the time, no matter what. And this is one I'm really excited to have in the collection. So, um, Thank you. yeah. Karen, where can we find you if people want to follow along with you online? Do you have any online platforms or presence anywhere? I do. I have a Facebook page um, and I have an Instagram, which is the Instagram handle is Sourdough by Science, okay. which is the name of the book. Um, and you can find, yeah, you can find if you go on the Instagram, you'll find the link to a website um, and for the book and yeah, Perfect. follow along. All right. Sourdough by Science, y'all. Go follow. And I know I learned so much. Thank you so much, Karen. Like I literally, there's stuff I had no idea and I feel so enlightened right now. So I appreciate your time. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure, Jill. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. It was so fun.